You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Uh, And now we return to the Word and the book of Daniel. Uh, We're we're getting, really, this is near the end of the record of Nebuchadnezzar. uh, And he has another dream. We've already heard about and and talked about his first dream. This is the second dream. Um, As happened in the first at the first time none of his counselors could interpret the dream until at last Daniel shows up uh, Daniel uh, has that God-given ability to uh, interpret uh, the dream and he does uh, and that's where we're going to pick up the story we're going to pick up the story right where Daniel starts interpreting the dream uh, in the interest of time we don't have uh, the time to read all of chapter four you can see it's a long chapter uh, but in the second half where, where, that we're going to read, as Daniel interprets the dream, he, he repeats what the dream was. And the first half of the text is pretty much about what the dream was. So I think reading this part, you'll, you'll understand uh, the whole story. Uh, Daniel 4, starting at verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you in the uh, worship folder. Uh, this is God's word, Daniel four nineteen. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew. Catch the change of the pronoun there. Now we're not talking about a tree. We're talking about a person. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. We're not sure what those seven periods of time are. Um, They might be years. They might be months. Uh, I think more likely seasons, uh, which would make it about a year and a half. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be made with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts now together be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our protector and our redeemer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My first year constitutional law professor was Antonin Scalia. A giant intellect, uh, soon destined to become one of the most distinguished justices ever to sit on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, So about six years ago, I watched his funeral with great interest. His son, Paul Scalia, uh, a Catholic priest, preached. Preached at his own father's funeral. And here's how he started his sermon. We are gathered here because of one man, a man known personally to many of us, known only by reputation to even more, a man loved by many, scorned by others, a man known for great controversy and for great compassion. 
That man, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth. It is him whom we proclaim. Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, buried, risen, seated at the right hand of the Father. It is because of him, because of his life, death, and resurrection, that we do not mourn as those who have no hope, but in confidence we commend Antonin Scalia to the mercy of God. (laughs) That is one big beginning for a sermon, isn't it? It's great. Paul Scalia made the point, well, there is in the end only one who is great. You know, no matter how distinguished, no matter how smart, no matter how accomplished, at the end of the day, there is only one who is truly great. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that. You and I need to be reminded of it. You know, three times, you probably heard the repetition of this, this phrase, of what Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to learn, right? Which is what we're supposed to learn. The most high, right? The greatest. The most high rules the kingdom of men, right? He rules over all the earth and gives it to whom he will, right? He, he, he gives, he, he not only rules over the whole earth, but he, he rules over the leaders of the earth, right? Do you live out of that truth? Do you consciously live out of that truth uh, every day? Or has the sin of pride made you forget it? Uh, Pride was at the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's ghastly fall. He recognized that right at the very end. Uh, Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Uh, That's what Nebuchadnezzar had been doing. He was walking in Pride. This text tells us a lot about pride. And so that's, the, that's what we're going to look at today, pride. And, and we're going to look at three truths about pride that emerge from the text here. First, um, the problem of pride. And then second, the path away from pride. And then finally, the power to purge pride. Okay, so that's the problem of pride the path away from pride, and finally, the power to purge pride. So first, the problem of pride. Here's how a secular expert sort of traced the pride dynamic. doesn't use the word pride. Uh, This is a a, a professor, a woman professor at um, uh, USC, what Jim Houston used to call the real USC, University of South Carolina. Um, and she had made a study of self-destructive political leaders and, and wrote a column about her findings in the Washington Post. And, and here's what she, she, she found. She says, self-destructive leaders gain power in part because they're smart or clever and then start believing they're smarter and cleverer than anyone. They start to underestimate others. Then, she says, the more power or success they gain, the more they lose the sense of the limits of that power. And nobody around them reminds them of those limits. 
Finally, she says their record of successes and their accumulation of power leads them to indulge fantasies of omnipotence and invulnerability, a pathological narcissism that leads them to lose all touch with reality. Well, that's a pretty apt description of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, as well as other uh, sort of self-destructive political leaders I can think of and that you can probably think of. But what's missing from that insightful secular analysis is, is really what drives it, right? What, what drives you from being smart and clever to thinking you're smarter and cleverer than other people and then and, and then underestimating, looking down on people, and then thinking that you're more powerful and, and better and uh, end up sort of a pathological narcissist. What's driving that? Well, what drives that dynamic is not, a secular professor probably isn't going to say it. It's what the Bible calls sin. And the sin that drives it, the particular sin that drives that dynamic, is the, is the mother of all sins, uh, pride. Let me point out three ways that sin, that the sin of pride is a real problem. Okay. Uh, first, first way that, that sin is a, that pride is a problem is, is that as C.S. Lewis reminded us in mere Christianity, uh, sin, uh, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. The complete anti-God state of mind pride is is what uh, what causes you to push God um, uh, off center out of your life uh, and to install you at the center of your life uh, pride is what makes you try to convert God into a non entity in your life which so and which you when we, you when you do when you live as if in your pride, as if God is a non-entity, you become what a number of uh, scholars and pastors I've, I've uh, heard call, you, you become a cosmic plagiarizer. Which uh, is, uh, that's interesting, right? Think about, you know, plagiarism. Pl- plagiarism is, is taking something that somebody else has done and saying it's your own, right? Taking credit for it as, as your own. That's what a plagiarism plagiarist does uh, and and when pride makes us uh, cosmically plagiarize right we begin to take credit for what God has done um, everything we have everything we are comes comes from the Lord uh, and yet we 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 take credit for it we we accept responsibility for it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, right? What do you have that you have not received? Meaning received from God, right? If then you received it from God, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, but somehow achieved it, right? So, so, so we, we cosmically plagiarize. Pride is also both comparative, right? How am I doing relative to other people? And it's, and it's also competitive. 
I'm going to do better than that guy, right? Uh, so, so pride places your focus uh, on you and other people uh, and not on God, right? And as a result, pride ends up making you sort of a self-absorbed and person and a self-absorbed person is an unattractive person and a self-absorbed person is an unloving person, right? You're not loving God. You are ignoring God. You're not loving other people. You are competing with them. You're trying, you're, you're engaged in, in a prideful game of one-upsmanship. And don't you see all of this, right, in, the, uh, in, in this offending remark of, of Nebuchadnezzar at verse 30, right? You see, you see the, uh, the, the, the plagiarism, you see the, the, uh, uh, the competition, you see the comparison. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty, So pride's a problem because it, it, um, it, it's the complete anti-God state of mind. It puts us in a place, actually, right, where, remember what Peter says, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And, you know, if, if that troubles you, think how you feel if you've been plagiarized. Right? You want to oppose the person who's plagiarized you, right? It's a great offense that they've taken your art or your, your work product and claimed it as their own. Of course you oppose that. Well, that's what you do. You set yourself up to, for God to uh, oppose you. Pride is not only the complete anti-God state of mind, it places you in a position where God is opposing you. Right? Life's hard enough, Right? Just dealing with other people, dealing with gravity. You, you don't want to be pushing against the Lord. But that's what pride does. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Second way that pride's a problem is, is that it doesn't allow you to rest. And man, we all need rest. But pride doesn't allow you to rest, right? Think about it. Since pride disconnects you from God then life becomes, in your mind, all about you. And if it's all about you, then life is also on you. Life is up to you. It's on you to succeed. It's on you to be bigger and better than the next guy. It's on you to win the competition game. So if you're doing well... Uh, then your rest is disturbed by the compulsive need to maintain, right? If, you, if, you're, if, if you're going about in your pride and you are succeeding, then, then the, the, the struggle becomes, now I've got to maintain it. Now I've got to protect what I have. I've got to preserve my position. I have to stay on top. See, that was Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar reached a level of success and achievement that none of us will, will, will ever match. Um, it says at the beginning of chapter 4, part we didn't read, that he was, as that chapter opened, he was at ease and prospering in his palace. But then you immediately learn that he's not sleeping. And why is he not sleeping? Well, it's because he had that dream 
about that tree being chopped down, uh, and and he and it made him afraid. He was fearful because I sense he probably picked up what this was about even before Daniel told him. Right, that that uh, his position, his power, his property were were all at risk, and so he's he's tossing and turning in bed. What do I do? What do I do to preserve my position, to protect my property, to consolidate my power, not lose it. But if, on the other hand, you're not like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you, you know, you're not doing well. You're not necessarily succeeding or achieving. It, you, pride's still an issue. It just works the other way, right? It's kind of a reverse pride. Pride disturbs your rest by anger and, and envy and bitterness at those who are doing better than you, achieving what you think you've deserved, Right? And so, and so your rest is broken. You're tossing and turning about, you know, how that person snubbed you. And you're thinking of all the snappy answers that you can come back with. 2 a.m. is a good time to do that. Uh, whoa, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're planning on how to get even. You're planning on how to, uh, how to do better. Um, and it's not a restful existence. Last month's Vanity Fair magazine contained an interview with um, the actress Jennifer Lawrence, very talented uh, actress, um, Academy Award-winning actress. And I, I, had, I was interested in the interview because I had noticed that she, she wasn't, she hasn't been around much. She hadn't, hadn't seen her in. A while, and the, and the interview explained why that she had done the last four movies she had done had not been well received either by the critics or by uh, her fans, and she was being criticized. Um, and uh, what did she do? How did she address that criticism? Well, she did what I probably would have done, what you might have done, is that you just dive harder into the work, right? And that seemed like. To her, the more she, the harder she dove into her work, the the more the criticism came. And she said, and pretty soon they weren't just criticizing, you know, the the movies. They weren't just criticizing my acting. They were criticizing my existence, which you know you might think is overspeak, but until if you until you've been on social media and you probably can get, pick up the kind of things she was here, you know, getting on on social media where. Um, People are trolling and um, saying saying awful things about you, um, and so she comes to this conclusion. Here's here's the a quote. She says, "So that kind of shook me out of thinking that work or your career can bring any kind of peace to your soul." You know, that's a good lesson. Um, she's not a believer, but she's she's learned that what had had. What fueled her pride, right? Her, her, her popularity and her position and her possessions, um, you know, her work, her career, and was, was not bringing any kind of peace to her soul. And, and that's where we so often go, isn't it? Um, to, to things like career and work, uh, because they feed our pride, um, but they don't give rest to our souls. They don't. 
So pride's a problem because it's the complete anti-God state of mind. It puts you in opposition to God. It's a problem because it doesn't allow you to rest. And third and finally, pride's a problem because it, it dehumanizes you. It makes you less of a human being. Uh, and th- you're right, this event is, is here in part to teach you that. It's a graphic demonstration, right? Could it be more graphic? Could it be more literal? Uh, right? right before our eyes, the, the most powerful man in the known world is literally dehumanized. It's, and it, it's, if, if you were here last week for the, whereas we were talking about the furnace episode, and, and we made the point that the furnace episode was in part there to graphically illustrate a tr- truth that we can't see. And the truth we can't see, in, that we couldn't see with the furnace episode, was, you know, how does a Christian relate to death? What, is, what does death do to a Christian? Answer, not much. Right? The death has no power over the Christians. But it's hard, we don't see that with our physical senses. So God in his grace gives us that furnace event so we actually see it. And now he's showing us what pride in a very graphic way, what we may not be able to see is that how how pride just spiritually dehumanizes us. Um, It shows us how dangerous it really is. It eats away at our humanity. Shakespeare understood it in in, uh, his play Troilus and Cressida, Uh, One of the characters uh, says, he that is proud eats up himself. Pride is his own glass, his own trumpet, his own chronicle. We eat up ourselves with with pride. Uh, Again, this works when the pride comes from achievement, like, like Nebuchadnezzar here, right? Nebuchadnezzar is proud because he has succeeded. He's achieved by the world standards. He's on top. Uh, and yet it dehumanizes him. Right? He's eating grass on all fours. Uh, but it also, this principle, this dehumanizing principle of pride also works in the reverse pride situation when things aren't going so well and yet you're still a proud person. And you see that in the Bible and for sure in Psalm 73 a psalm written by Asaph, and Asaph confesses in that psalm how bitter he was, how angry uh, he, he was and envious he was at the success and prosperity of other people, right? He's not getting any payoff from his godliness, and, and, and he confesses to God, you know, God, looking back, he says, when my soul was embittered, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast, Toward you, see. So it works. It works in both situations. If you want to put a contemporary face on that, contemporary, at least for me, and maybe some of you, not contemporary to some of you, you won't have a clue who I'm talking about. The name Art Garfunkel, right? Uh, I had heard recently from from I love. Uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, I love his music. I love Art Garfunkel's voice. I had heard that, uh, that Art Garfunkel was, uh, was a bitter old man. I didn't, uh, uh, some friend told me that, and I, so I uh, was interested, and I started doing a little research, and I found some interviews in the Rolling Stone and, and other trade magazines, and it turns out it's true. 
right? Here we are in 2022, more than, slightly more than 50 years after Paul Simon pulled the plug on Simon and Garfunkel. And, and, and Art Garfunkel, a, a multi-talented man, is still bitter, still resentful of the success that Paul Simon has achieved without him. And it's sad. It's sad to read. He's a shell of the man he should be and could be. Why? Pride's eating him up. Pride's eating away his humanity. Right? And and when that happens, as this event shows us, we become more animalistic. Uh, Think about a beast. Think about a wild animal. What are they like? Right? Predatory. Joyless, loveless, out only for itself, impulse driven, no consciousness of God, totally focused on the horizontal, right? Reactive, not initiating, but reactive, right? This is not who you were made to be, people, right? You're a human being made in the image of God. You have carry the dignity uh, of the creator in whose image uh, you were made. Uh, And yet, when we push the Creator out and exalt ourselves, we become more and more animal-like. So that's the problem of pride. It's a big one. It's a serious one. Um, Second point, the path away from pride. Well, we've learned pride hurts you. We've learned pride hurts other people around you. We've learned pride dehumanizes you. We've learned pride sets you in opposition uh, to God. So you should be asking, how can I move away from faith? From, 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 uh, not from faith, from, from uh, pride. How can I move away from pride toward humility? And the answer is pretty straightforward. Um, Go back to that offending statement of Nebuchadnezzar at verse 30. Um, And look at at the context. What were his eyes doing? Where was he looking? Where were his eyes focused when he said those things, when he said that thing? You know, I'm, behold, I'm. You know, this is the Babylon I've, I've built and it's for my majesty, right? And then, and then he immediately becomes like an ox. What, what, was, what were his eyes doing? They were looking down, right? They were looking down on the city and on the, the citizens uh, of Babylon. Why do I know they were looking down? Because he's walking on a rooftop. Which got me to thinking, you know, Bad things happen when kings walk on rooftops. <laughs> if you're familiar with the story of David, you'll remember that David was, King David was walking on a rooftop when he spied Bathsheba, which was the beginning of his uh, downfall. Well, here he's walking on the roof and he sees the city he imagines he's built, right? Cosmically plagiarizing uh, uh, it completely ignoring that that it all comes from god 's hands um, and and that uh, you know it 's it's like c s Lewis said in that uh, 
Same. It's mere Christianity. And if you don't want to read all of mere Christianity, just read the chapter on pride. It's, it's, worth, it's worth the 10 minutes. Um, C.S. Lewis said, says in that chapter, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Uh, and that's what uh, was going on with Nebuchadnezzar. But just a few verses later, when he is now most beast-like, right? He's looking like Howard Hughes in the throes of his own mental illness, right? Long hair, long nails. Um, the seven times have now passed over him. Where do his eyes go then? It's very... This, this is telling. I mean, this really charts out the path uh, away from pride. Look at, look at verse 34. And at the end of the days, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, at the end of the days, that's the end of the seven periods of time, uh, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes where? To heaven. So now no longer looking down uh, on the city he imagines he's built. Uh, looking down on other people uh, because that increases his majesty. Um, he lifts his eyes to heaven. And then what happens immediately? It says his reason returned. My, my reason returned to me. That's, he looked up, he fixed his eyes on God. He starts praising and honoring God. And, and, and what has he now realized about God? He says it there in, in that kind of a hymn that uh, he, he says, right? He knows that God lives forever, knows that his, his kingdom is everlasting. Uh, he knows that all men and women, all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing next to God, right? Uh, and that God is completely sovereign. He does according to his will. In heaven and on earth, nobody can stop him and nobody can question him. You see, that's what's restored his reason. He's now seeing himself in light. He's beginning to understand himself in light of who God is. And when you start considering God, you are immediately on a path away from pride toward humility, right? Um, God is so much infinitely greater than we are. And I find it fascinating that, that it's, it's, it's at that point that he, he focuses on, you know, he doesn't say, you know, my perspective returned to me or my uh, whatever. He says, my reason returned to me. And it, it really ma- makes the point, friends, and we've said it before, that, that reason requires God. Right, that 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 uh, if you take away God, you you take away reason. Uh, and it, and if you don't, if if that is questionable to you, let me just give you a, a, a one extreme example, but it's a good example. Uh, Peter Singer, uh, professor of bioethics at Princeton University. Uh, and devout atheist, aggressive atheist. Um, 
says, and here's his conclusion, there is no reason to think that a fish suffers less when dying in a net than a fetus suffers during an abortion. Hence, the argument for not eating fish is much stronger than the argument against abortion. The life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. That's a Princeton professor. That's reason divorced from God, and it's not reason. Right? If you're a Christian, you see that. It's, it's, it's irrational evil. Reason requires God. Now, Daniel had urged Nebuchadnezzar to repent right away, right? In verse 27, right? As soon as he interprets the dream, he he basically says, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Break off your sins right now, right? Start practicing righteousness. Start showing mercy to the oppressed right now. Maybe God will extend your prosperity, right? And... What's the answer? Well, silence. You get nothing from Nebuchadnezzar. What does God do? God waits. He waits a full year, 12 months, right? He's been gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. He's got, right? He's, he's restored him. His reason is, or, or no, well, he's, he's warned him, right? And, and he's sent this, and he's sent the man of God to warn him to, to repent. And he does, and he, and he doesn't. And so after 12 months, that's when verse 30 happens. And he says that, that statement of extraordinary pride and the dream is actualized. And the point here, I think, for you and me, friends, is that God is going to do for you. God is going to do to you whatever it takes to ensure that you stop looking down if that's what you're doing and start looking up to him. You know, sometimes I wish it were not the case. You know, I, sometimes I've prayed to God, you know, you know, you could just tell me and I'd do it. No, uh, no. Because quite frankly, in that respect, I'm like Nebuchadnezzar. I get told and told and told to do it and I don't. Right? So, so what, what does God do? He, God is, well, how does God cause you and me to repent? Romans, in Romans chapter 2, Paul tells us, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God kind here? He is. In a profound way, God is, is deeply kind to Nebuchadnezzar here. It doesn't look like kindness, does it? Uh, it doesn't feel like kindness. Um, but um, sometimes the kindest thing that God can do is take you into and through some difficulty, some hardship, some stripping away uh, of, of that which has been fueling your pride and taking your eyes off of God. If that's what it's going to take to finally show you the folly, the foolishness of your pride and the beauty and the security and the, and the uh, uh, contentment that comes from trusting in him. Um, and friends, if I can make a comment, we've said, we've said it before in this series. It's, it, it seems to me, I don't have a, you know, a, a, the hotline to, to the throne room, but in observing what's been going on for the last two years, it seems to me that God, 
may be using this turmoil, the political turmoil, medical turmoil, cultural turmoil, uh, economic turmoil, using that, this turmoil to do just that, to, to strip us, uh, 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 strip from us the things that we have uh, uh, been taking pride in that, it, that is less than him, right? Pride in ourselves, pride in our power, pride in our politics, pride in our institutions, pride in our supposed autonomy. Uh, and he does that for the ultimately, absolutely kind purpose of refocusing us on him and restoring our reason. I'm reminded here of, uh, by Ralph Davis, good commentator on, on Daniel. Um, he, he was reflecting on, on this, essentially a conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's believing in, 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 God, uh, in God now. And uh, Martin Luther had wrote a, a small catechism, his small catechism. You can find it online. And what that small catechism is, and it's as helpful, might be helpful for some of you parents who are, you know, looking for devotions with your kids. Um, what he does is he takes the Apostles' Creed and he goes through it and he, and he basically unpacks the, each phrase. And, and the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Right? And here's what Martin Luther says in the, in the small catechism. What does that mean? This is what it means. I believe that God has created me and all that exists. That he's given and still preserves to me body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my limbs, my reason, and all my senses, and also clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and child, land, cattle, and all my property. He wrote this in the 1500s. That he provides me richly and daily with all the necessaries of life, protects me from all danger, preserves and guards me against all evil. And all this out of pure, paternal, divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness of mine, for all of which I am in duty bound to, I am in duty bound to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. Isn't that a great statement of, of, um, of, of God's, what God gives, his gracious provision for us? Well, that's the pathway away from pride, right? Um, but how do you actually get the power um, to, to purge pride from your life and to really start Living, I mean, really functionally living with humility, right? Not paying lip service to it, but really thinking of others more than yourself, really regarding others' interests more important than your own, really loving and praying for your enemies, really surrendering your rights, if that's what it's going to take to, to serve someone and to, to uh, uh, you know, love them. Um, where do you get the power to do that? And that's the third and final point, the power to purge pride. And this is real short. 
What I will say is you're, you're not going to get it from, from just what we read from Martin Luther, as wonderful as that is. Because quite frankly, there I know people who are not Christians who would probably agree with that. They might even re- recite it, say it, right? A sort of general acknowledgement of God, a general acknowledgement of his goodness, a general, general acknowledgement that he provides me with things and protects me from uh, dangers. Uh, that's good as far as it goes. But to really get the power to purge pride from your life and to really engage humility, uh, you, you also have to go to the next phrase in the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Amen. Right? Um, until you see Jesus, until you personalize and internalize what he did for you, until he, you can say that he's your Lord and he really is your Lord. That is, he is the one you functionally serve and obey. Right? Not perfectly. None of us do it perfectly. But until you can say and, and really know that he's your Lord, you're going to be a slave to pride. And it's destru- dehumanizing destruction. Right? You've got to see Jesus. What, listen, what you need to say is this, and I'm going to riff off of Paul here in Philippians, but wh- what you need, to be able to, you need to be able to say this and believe this. Okay? Jesus, though he was in the form of God, for me did not count equality with God his equality with God, something to be held on to. But for me, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself for me by obeying God's law perfectly, the law I break continually. Even obeying that law to the point of death on a cross, dying under the, the penalty provisions of God's law to pay the death penalty for my sin. Now that's talking about the humility of the son, right? For you. And you know, it even goes in some ways, it, it occurred to me as I was thinking about the, the beastly nature of what, of what pride does to us. When Jesus was obedient to death on a cross, don't think about the, you know, the paintings, uh, the, all the classical paintings of the crucifixion that, that so sanitize that event. Right? Because Isaiah 52 tells us that before he was nailed to the cross, that Jesus was so tortured, so beaten, that he, it, was un, it was unclear to observers that he was human. I mean, you were looking at him and you'd go, is that a person or is that roadkill? Jesus went that far down, right? To even become in, 
in going to the cross beast-like so we would never be beast-like. Guys, when you can say this, when you can see that Jesus did all of this for you, right? Now you're not just doing what everybody thinks Christianity is, which is, uh, you know, following Jesus as your example. Good luck with that. And it's not Christianity. If you can say that, then Jesus is your living Lord. And and because he's your living Lord, you now have a power in you. A power that comes from the Holy Spirit of Jesus, which is in you. The same power in you that raised Jesus from the dead. And that same power is at work in you to empower you to obey Jesus as Lord, to live for Jesus, to live like Jesus, and to know every day, to know every day that to live is Christ and to die is even better. There, there is true rest for your soul. And so I hope that we all have as learned what Nebuchadnezzar learned, what we're supposed to learn from this text, right? That our God rules, right? That's rest for our souls. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this, uh, giving us this event. Thank you for the severe kindness you showed Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Lord, thank you for the severe kindnesses you show us. Um, uh, Lord, it's so often I shake my fist at you and I complain at those things, but in hindsight, I see how you have used them to strip away those things that in my life that I tend to that tend to feed my pride as over against you. And uh, so thank you for those severe kindnesses. Bring them into our lives if we need them, Father, but help us even now repent and, and, and live in a way that pleases you. Um, thank you. And thank you for Jesus. Um, and that he assures our destiny. We pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.